Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, and you can also listen to me on Thursday mornings. This is a new show that I'm hosting and producing at the State University of Albany in New York called The Social Workers, WCDB, FM 90.90, and we also stream on the net. Uh, it's uh, an opportunity for us, the School of Social Welfare, to enlighten and educate the university alumni and also our national community about the goals and trends in the social work profession. So that's 90.9 if you're in the New York area, and if not, you can listen to us streaming on the net, The Social Workers. But first, uh, this morning I have three guests on the Catherine Zock Show. The first is uh, Roba Whiteley, the Executive Director of Together Rx Access, and she's going to be talking to us about diabetes. Diabetes is an epidemic. Lack of insurance can make it more difficult to manage this chronic disease, so she and I will be discussing that. And later on in the show, we have uh, Mariana Beatty, whose youngest son, Luke, died in a tragic teenage car accident, and her son, Luke, became an organ donor. He was only 15 years old. Um, so he gave the gift of life, and as many of you know, this month, April is National Organ Donation Awareness Month. Uh, and last, we have Dr. David Dosa. He's an assistant professor of medicine and community health at Brown University Medical School, and he has an unusual cat at his facility named Oscar, who possesses a unique gift uh, to help his dying patients. So first, Roba Whiteley, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on. Good morning. Uh, great to be with you. Talk about uh, what you've described as a national epidemic, diabetes, and uh, to share with your listeners uh, a program that can help them better afford their medicines. Let's give the listeners the statistics, Roba. Nearly 26 million adults in the United States are now living with diabetes. More than 50 million Americans are uninsured. So we can start from there. We can, and you know, this is um, really a very difficult time, as I know everyone understands across the nation, every state uh, has problems, sometimes uh, very severe problems with uh, people uh, in this tough, tough economy, losing jobs, uh, struggling to make ends meet. But it's, it's particularly difficult for people who suffer chronic conditions, people who need medicines every day uh, to live a quality life and to manage their health care problems. So 
Uh, we're talking today about uh, what many call uh, a national health crisis or a national epidemic, and that is the, the growing number of people who suffer diabetes. And uh, it's a serious problem because uh, if people don't take their medicine as prescribed in order to manage their blood sugar and their condition, uh, they do run the risk of, of many very serious complications, complications like blindness, kidney failure, uh, and sometimes people even suffer the loss of limbs. So it's really important uh, that they know how to access the health care they need and to access the medicines they need to stay healthy and manage diabetes. So, Roba, as the executive director of Together Rx Access, um, what do you do, and what is specifically what is the organization? What you know, um, Together RX Access. Together RX Access is a philanthropic initiative uh, that's made possible by many of the nation's leading pharmaceutical companies uh, to help uninsured uh, people save money on their medicines. And it's a free program. Uh, it's a prescription savings card. The card is free to get and free to use. It's incredibly easy and fast to enroll. Um, uh, the program is for anyone uh, who is not eligible for Medicare, meaning it's largely for folks who are less than 65 years old and don't have uh, health care coverage that includes prescription drug benefits. So that 50, actually it's 52 plus million now and sadly growing every day, uh, we're really here uh, for the majority of those folks to get a break uh, on how much it costs the, uh, the cost them right at their neighborhood pharmacy for the medicines they need to take care of their health. So from a uh, so practical it, point of view, let's say, and you're doing this all over the country, what would a listener who finds themselves in that position, they can't pay for their medication, it's not there for their diabetes, and they, uh, where would they go? Do they go online to get the information? Do they talk to their family physician? Or how does the process work? You know, um, it's so easy and fast to apply. They can click on our website, togetherrxaccess.com, or because we're doing a national collaboration with the American Diabetes Association using all of their communication channels as well as ours to get the word out, they can also visit diabetes.org. And on both of those websites, uh, they will be able to very quickly click on uh, information about the program and instantly enroll online. Uh, we take people at their word. We require no documentation. They answer three quick questions about do they indeed have no prescription drug coverage and they're not eligible for Medicare. And if, if someone has an income as an individual of $45,000 or less a year, or for example, a family of four has an income of $90,000 or less a year, they're instantly enrolled in the program. Uh, the website instantly gives them a membership number while they wait less than two weeks to get their card, and they can take that number right away to their pharmacy to present with their prescriptions and save on over 300 brand-name prescription medicines and products, products like diabetes meters and test strips, uh, so that they can get the medicines they need. Yeah, we well, should note that it's not just a it's not just 
purchasing medications that you need to manage diabetes as a chronic illness, but you also need a lot of other things, like, as you say, blood glucose meters, test strips, all of those kinds of things. So, That's right, uh, it's Catherine. A, and, yeah. and often uh, people who have diabetes also have other conditions, conditions like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, children uh, have asthma. So we have uh, medicines uh, that really people can save money on for a number of conditions. And by the way, people can also save on literally thousands of generic medicines. So we say it just makes good sense to be a smart consumer, to learn more about uh, what what programs like Together Rx Access are there to help you be able to better afford your medicines. And by the way, uh, I think a great resource is also to call 1-800-DIABETES. That's a toll-free number uh, housed at the American Diabetes Association, uh, staffed by real people uh, who know a lot about not only how to save money on medicines, but just about anything you'd want to know about managing diabetes, and they're nice people. They're warm and wonderful to talk to. So we really encourage people to take action, uh, to click on diabetes.org or pick up the phone and call 1-800-DIABETES to learn more and to take care of your health. When you talk about taking care of your health and take action, um, does Rx Access or the information at 1-800-DIABETES, Roba, have anything talk about prevention, like why do you think these numbers are climbing? Why do we have uh, 26 million adults in the United States with, I assume, we're talking about type, obviously, type 2 diabetes, a small portion, I guess, or type 1 diabetes. Type 2 is the kind you acquire. Uh, and acquire, as I understand it, as a result of a lack of exercises, poor food choices, those kinds of things. Where does that come into play? How can well, we take responsibility for our health before we get diabetes? Yes, I'll answer your question, Catherine, as a health advocate, not as a representative of the American Diabetes Association. But I think uh, most health professionals, and particularly people who have uh, worked with people who suffer diabetes, know that uh, certainly uh, with type 2 uh, diabetes, uh, which often occurs in people who, as you say, uh, are overweight or obese or have sedentary lifestyles or maybe don't have the healthiest uh, eating style, that as people take charge of their life, as they begin to live a more active life, as they begin to eat a healthier diet, as they, you know, really begin to take steps to reduce their body weight, that not only does their blood sugar go down, their diabetes improves, they're often able to take less medicine, sometimes go off medicine completely, but it also improves many of the health problems that occur with diabetes. Cholesterol goes down, triglycerides triglycerides go down, and people reduce their blood pressure. So uh, I, I, as a health advocate, uh, uh, really beat that drum uh, a lot because, you know, if you're someone who has diabetes or you want to make sure you're preventing the possibility of getting diabetes, it makes sense to, uh, to take those steps today to live a healthier lifestyle. And, you know, what better time of year than right now in the springtime uh, the skies are getting blue, the flowers are popping up. It's a great day uh, to put on your, your shoes and take a walk. It's true. And, I, and 
ride your bike or do whatever kind of exercise that you do do. But as you pointed out earlier, Roba, and, and I guess this question keeps plaguing me, we see, we're not doing that because, as you say, the numbers are growing. They're not decreasing. The number of people who are diagnosed every year with diabetes goes on and on and on. So it doesn't appear that we're going in the right di- direction. And as a healthcare advocate, as you say, why not? Well, um, you know, there there are so many reasons, many of them having to do with uh, lifestyle, how our cities and towns are built. Uh, you know, do we have places to walk, safe places to walk? Um, are we surrounding ourselves with foods? You know, much of this country, most of this country is rural. And there are throughout the country what often people are talking about now is food deserts. And food deserts are places where people don't have um supermarkets or grocery stores where uh, people can go and buy what we think of as healthy healthy foods, fruits, vegetables, uh, fresh products of all kinds. So people tend to be eating more processed foods, higher fat, higher sugar, higher salt foods, and we all know the consequence of that. Um, so there are a lot of, of social issues. I'm talking to a social worker about <laughs> social issues. Yeah, but, you're talking you know, to a social worker, and we've only got a couple minutes left, yeah. but I do want to mention, you know, you talk about living in rural communities, and we have to make good choices, but the choices have to be available for us to make. That's and, right. and not that I'm promoting this city, but I just recently, actually two days ago, got back from Portland, Oregon, which seems to be one of those ideal cities where all the food is, is grown outside the city and everything is organic and not processed. And, uh, and it, as you were describing, the, the riverfront is a place where people can walk and ride their bicycles and the kind of this seemingly utopian com, uh, community, but one maybe that we can take a look at and, and, and learn some lessons from. I think that's right, and I think, you know, not everyone lives in Utopia or Portland, but <laughs> everyone in New York. Think, can find a way to find their place to, to be active and do what they can do to live a healthier life. Yeah, I, I think that's really, uh, that's key, obviously, to this, this whole idea of prevention. But uh, since we do have a minute left, and there are people who, who don't have that choice right now or who are managing chronic illness, managing diabetes, they can call the number that you mentioned, 1-800-DIABETES. And then your website again, because, uh, you know, if they want to purchase or need, you know, uh, um, to get access to the, the medication and the other things that are associated with managing their illness. Yes, they can click on togetherrxaccess.com, and also if they click on diabetes.org, they will get them to us and they will help them uh, understand how to sign up for the program. Great. It's wonderful having you on the show today. We really enjoyed our conversation. Roba Whiteley, Executive Director of Together Rx. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Next, we'll be talking to Marianne Abate, um, whose youngest son, Luke, died 15 years old in a tragic teenage car accident, and Luke became an organ donor. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me next is Marianne Abonting, Marianne's son, her youngest son, Luke, 15 years old, died in a tragic teenage car accident uh, in February 2006. And uh, Luke became an organ donor, and five people were given the gift of life. Um, Here to talk to us about about Luke, her family, uh, is Luke's mother, Marianne Abati. They've now uh, made a movie of of their family, um, and we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Marianne. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Great to have you. The fifth, the fifth quarter is the name of the film, and right. uh, as I understand it, it was just released. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, as you know, Mira, I'm a social worker, and um, I have three sons. I also uh, did a lot of work, uh, Marianne, with the Center for Organ Donation and Transplant here in New York, as well mm-hmm. as with uh, the uh, CDC, and um, I was involved in a study where for a year where they hired social workers and uh we interviewed families um, uh, I interviewed probably twenty or thirty families to find out uh to get information uh to find out why they either chose to donate their loved one's organs or chose not to do it and what affected their decision so I have some understanding i think of of um, well maybe some of the, of the choice that you made um but that's where I'm coming from. But um, so, start with telling us um, how you know. T- I mean, obviously, everything changed uh, the day that day in February 2006. Um, what happened? Well, um, you know, Luke was um, a sophomore in high school, and he was at lacrosse practice, and he had an arranged ride. And she was a senior trainer, and unfortunately, she had to leave. She had a test to study for, and he wanted to shower as the guys did. And 
you know, he didn't call me, um, and he accepted naively a ride with an acquaintance, a teammate that he didn't know very well and had no idea what kind of driving tendencies this young man had. And basically, um, this young man went down a hilly, almost driveway-type road that was um, around the corner from the school, and it was, um, you know, the whole idea was to get airborne. He went in excess of 77 miles per hour and basically lost control of the car, and the car fell. There were other passengers as well in the car, and um, it fell on the right rear passenger, which was Luke. And, you know, the hard part was that Luke had asked him to stop. You know, this was not an agreed-on type, you know, ride. So the car fell in, and he was the uh, passenger who um, absorbed the impact of the accident. And so he was airlifted to Atlanta Medical Center. And, of course, you get that call as a parent, the one you pray you'll never have to face. And we went over there, rushed over there, and, um, you know, it was very touch and go at that point. The doctors um, just, you know, gave no percentage of living, and by the next day, they had, um, after doing all the tests, declared him brain dead. So we had to make that decision. You know, by Georgia law, they could take him off life support, you know, but we, you know, met as a family. And, you know, my other boys were um, 20 and 22 at the time, his, her, his brothers, and my, my daughter, Rachel, was not there. She has cerebral palsy, and just the whole experience of this would have just been way too difficult for her. And so we decided as a family, you know, what do we do? And I remember taking Luke when he was, 50, you know, the year before when he got his learner's permit, you know, they asked that question, do you want to be an organ donor? And, you know, I'm not sure he quite understood it, so we went over it. And I just said it very matter-of-factly because, obviously, I didn't want to, you know, make him do this. I think it's an individual decision. And he said, yeah, that he wanted to. Now, did he really think at that young age that, you know, this situation would come before us, you know, this soon in his life? Probably yeah, not. Probably. At that time, it was probably more academic for him, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, like, okay, yeah, that yeah, sounds good. But I still think he made a decision on uh-huh. some level. And so I wanted to honor that, you know, and I, I know the kind of kid Luke was. You know, he wasn't a perfect kid, but he was a generous kid, and he had a generous soul, and he cared about people, and he had a rare blood type. He was B negative, and it's my understanding that, you know, that's a rare, you know, matching organs, and a lot of the people with rare blood types tend to have to wait longer and potentially, you know, they die. Um, so it was that. And for me, I guess I just felt like it kept him here. I mean, I know that probably sounds odd, but it was sort of oddly comforting at that moment that part of him would still be here on Earth. Yeah, I can understand that as a mother and... Uh, yeah, because, I mean, you donated, what, five of, of Luke's organs, and, and it, 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 to me, the, I, I think as I'm listening to you, that's how I would feel. Like, my son is still here, and he's, you know, there are parts of him that are still alive. And But, my, but what about the rest of me? I know that everybody in a family doesn't always feel the same way, and these decisions can tear people apart. I mean, you had, as you said, you had your boys, you had yourself, your husband, 
Did everyone feel the same way when you made the decision to donate Luke's organs? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I know for my, my husband, it was just really, you know, I think once we sat and we really grappled with it, you know, Steve, my husband Stephen and I were very much at, on the same page, and we felt that, you know, we were his parents. And we did talk to our boys. Um, Adam, my oldest, seemed to struggle the most. I think most of his struggle came out of just being so hurt that his brother was dead. He just couldn't think of anybody else at that point. And, you know, but we all talked about it. He was a reluctant, you know, he's really a very generous person himself. But, you know, I think it's hard sometimes to think beyond your own darkness and your own pain to want to help other people. And there are probably people who just really can't do it. And I would never want to beat them up because you can't do something like that because going through something that tragic of a death is traumatic in and of itself. But, and you, you know, we all came to the decision are, that it was right. And, and also, I, I just, uh, I know I'm interrupting you, but I think that's a really important point. You're asked to make this, this, this decision that is so important uh, that touches you from your, to your very core at the most vulnerable time, and you have such a short period of, you know, there's just a, a window for you as a family to make the decision to either right. donate or not donate. And it's almost putting you in an, a seemingly impossible position as a family. Right. Exactly. You, um, you're already traumatized yeah. and then to be approached. And I will say that the hospital in, I, I will say the one thing that I do know is that they did everything possible to save Luke. I tried to remember that, that he, you know, there was evidence that this, you know, that he was brain dead. And for, for us, I think we just decided that it was the right thing in the end. And you're right, though. It is very hard, and you're kind of numb making this decision. But I do think it was right. Now, on this side of it, I do feel like it was really right. That was my next question, you know, because now you've had time, and it's obviously it's been a few years. And, you know, what... How does how do you feel? How does your husband feel? And how do the boys feel after making this decision? Well, you know, we, um, you know, of course, time doesn't heal, but it does somewhat help things become a little softer, and, and you know, your perspective can change. I think we all feel like it is the right thing. We um, have met the heart recipient, which was very rewarding because she was a very young, young mother who was going to die and leave two very young children. Um, she, at the time of, that she got the transplant, she came out of surgery on, my, on her daughter's first birthday, and she then had a three-month-old also. So from that perspective, yes, we have not met our other recipients, but having done some work with LifeLink and when you begin to meet recipients and how grateful they are, I think that we all kind of feel like that tragedy didn't get the last say of Luke's life. Now, my boys, Adam in particular, has not met Casey because it's still too painful, and I respect that. You know, he's just not ready, but, um, you know, the rest of us have met her, and that was um, very profound, rewarding, <laughs> bittersweet, I would say. Yeah. Do you have, uh, I mean, a continuing relationship with her, or do you want to have a continuing relationship with her? 
We do. You know, after I met her, you know, we've we've communicated through email and, you know, Facebook and and I wanted to be careful because I didn't want her to feel obligated to have to have a relationship with us. She did want to meet us, but I kind of wanted to take her lead because I did, you know, this is a gift and it should not come with strings attached and so, you know, as the time has come, um, you know, I remembered her birthday, and that day is special to me, and we actually were together at one of the premieres for the movie in Winston-Salem. So I think it's a, yes, I would love to be in relationship with her, but I want it to be on her terms. I don't want to make her obligated. You know what I'm saying? Does yep. that make any sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense, and so it's it's a kind of a well, as you're describing it. I mean, you you both want to have that connection, and if you both want to have it, it can be a really good thing. But if you have to respect uh, her choice as well, even if, and, and I guess that's what you're saying. Um, right. We're going to take a short break. Back, you know, when we come back, though, Marianne, I want to talk about the movie because they've made a movie about uh, you, your family, Luke, um, and. Um, it just came out, so I guess it's available in certain markets, but not everywhere in the country. Is that is that um, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, it's an independent film, and so it's kind of opening regionally, and it'll continue to open as it does well. You know, um, they will continue to move it throughout the United States, so that's our hope anyway. Terrific. Well, we want to get the film out there, but we'll be back in a minute. I'm talking to Marianne Abati. Uh, she is, uh, and this is, as you know, National Organ Donation Awareness Month, and her son, Luke, died in a tragic accident, and she and her family donated his organ so that five other people could live a healthy, long life. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. 
I'm your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Marianne Abadi. If you are just joining us, and uh, she is here to talk about herself, her family, her son, Luke, who was 15 years old in February 2006, was killed in a tragic car accident, and she and her family decided to donate his organs to five different people. So this month, and I mention this again, is National Organ Donation Awareness Month, so it's a perfect opportunity for Marianne to tell her story. Not only is she talking to us this morning, but there's a new movie that was just released. It's an independent film called The Fifth Quarter, and this is the story about the Abadi family. Um, and Marianne, you and I were talking during the break. Um, here you are. You, now you have a movie by a, a well-known director. Uh, and, um, you have uh, movie stars who are playing the roles of you and your husband. Uh, you're exposing yourself. Uh, you're telling your story to every to the world. Uh, first of all, how does that feel? And it seems to me that could be pretty scary stuff, even though you're doing. Um, I think, a service uh, to to all of us to be able to tell your story. It helps other people to get through um, family um, tragedies, crises like this. Right, right. It is hard. Um, you know, I, I am somewhat, I'm not a guarded person, but I am a private person. And, um, you know, to put the story that has closest to your heart, most sacred to your heart, and broke your heart is kind of scary to put it out there for everybody to see. But at the same time, I think we're supposed to tell our stories because we journey life together. And, you know, we can help each other along that journey. You know, I know I'm so grateful for the people that came alongside me in my pain and my grief to walk with me, that I could survive this, that I could do this. And so I hope that that would be the reason I would put this out there because it is a story of inspiration. It is also a story about a family, how they grapple with the intense grief. And it's pretty, um, you know, he's pretty. On- we're pretty honest about how we grieve this and how we as a family have stayed together, but it wasn't perfect and it wasn't always pretty. And, you know, it also raises the awareness to reckless driving and its consequences. And also, you know, it, it depicts organ donation, how it truly happens. And, you know, I think a lot of films have attempted to at least raise the awareness, but it's really important that it be depicted properly because there's enough, I think, misconceptions surrounding that. What are some of the misconceptions? Because I, I agree with you, there are. And that prevents people from making or the decision to uh, to donate or not, you know, to donate their, their loved one's organs. And, and exactly. what are some of those misconceptions? Well, I think that, you know, because somebody actually said it to me um, early on, oh, yeah, you know, I'm sure they were waiting for those organs. They know you're an organ, you know, that you've checked that you want to be an organ donor. I think people don't believe that a hospital will do everything possible to save you first, and they are actually not even in the equation. Um, you know, it's when a person is declared brain dead or, you know, or whatever the circumstances, you know, the, the organ doning element is a whole different part. It's not even an entity of the hospital. So I think that people need to understand that and that it really is done with ethics 
and that there are laws that govern this, and the people who are involved, at least I found, were extremely sensitive to us and was, did, did not push this on us, did not force us into this. So I think that's some of them. Um, you know, I think that's probably the largest, the most, probably the biggest one. Yeah, I think that's one, and I think in, in the work that I uh, experienced that I had with the with, with organ donation and transplant group in New York has been that also I think families are very concerned about how they're going to um, be able to uh, retrieve the organs, and that you must do it with with dignity uh, to, mm-hmm. to your the body to your loved one because that's a concern as well. Exactly, and I will say, my husband. And I believe they did that, insisted, even though he knew Luke was brain dead, he made them administer some anesthesia because he, you know, he didn't want him to hurt. And uh-huh. they, they did it. They administered anesthesia. They also were very gentle. You know, we were able to have, you know, we had an open casket so he wasn't, you know, um, pillaged, so to speak, or cut up savagely. Um, actually, when they went in and retrieved his organs, he had a terrible gash from the accident on his neck that they weren't, you know, they obviously at that point were not going to repair it because he was so critically ill. But when they went in to take the organs so that he could have an open casket, they repaired that as well. So that it is done with dignity. Um, you know, it really is. So I, I felt that that was important and that did happen. Yeah, I think that is important. I think as you're describing it, it's, um, in retrieving the organs, they do it in the same way that they would do surgery as if you were alive. Exactly. In exactly. the same way. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that we, I found through this, is that many of the people who are involved with this type of work, the nurses, doctors, um, you know, this is something that they're very passionate about and touched by. And they really do care about this, and they care about families, and they realize the sensitivity surrounding this from both sides of the donor and a recipient. And I think that is helpful as well. Do you ever, I mean, obviously, do you ever think about, um, as, you know, a mother, you have donated your son's organs, the people's lives that, that you have changed, in su- I, mean, I mean, in such a positive way, I mean, through your tragedy, but because um, I want to emphasize that, I think it's so important because um, you've been so much a part, you know, I mean, you, you've donated five of Luke's organs. Think mm-hmm. about what you've done to change, not just the, and I think sometimes we think about this, you know, you changed, well, say the mother who needed a, a heart, but you change families and you change families for generations by doing that. If you, if well, you change- I think five years out, I can, I feel that, you know, initially I just couldn't even think about them. I knew we had done the right thing, but, you know, when you're grieving in the own deepest place of your own grief, I just really couldn't think about them. And actually Casey had sent a beautiful letter early on thanking us for the heart, which I tucked away and I kept and I wept over it and it meant a lot to me, but I just had to put it away because I had to have a little bit of healing of my own. But as I step back from the tragedy, I see the goodness that can come from this, having met some recipients who honestly are so grateful for the gift of life and they do not take it lightly 
that somebody had to die. If anything, that's probably one of the issues they have to deal with. You know, it's kind of can be a hurdle to them to think that they've got somebody's organ that had to die in order to save them because they understand what it's like to be at the brink of death. So that makes, to me, part of my healing is to see that tragedy didn't get the last say over Luke's life. I didn't want this to end this way. And I felt like this was one of the ways that we as Luke's family could make this matter for something good. You know, you've brought up so many issues because, you know, most of us don't think about all the conflicting emotions, not only you and your family, but the recipients, as you said. They can feel guilty. I mean, there's a whole lot of issues that they themselves have to wrestle with, knowing what it's like to be near death. Um, and But, Marion, you know, you mentioned healing, and as a mother who loses, I mean, you've lost your son. Healing doesn't really <clears throat> have an, an end point, does it? It seems to me that there's always, you know, as, as life changes, as things go on, the healing process has to continue throughout your oh, whole life. Yes. This is something that we don't get over, um, you know, because a child is your future. And, you know, there were milestones that, you know, I regrieve, you know, like high school graduation was really difficult. You know, many of Luke's friends are in college, and when I see them, I'm so glad to see them because they are a connection, but it's painful because a boy changes so much between 15 and 21, and I think of what he would have been like as a man, you know, going on and getting married and having children, and I realized that Throughout this process, I will, you know, it's not like it's a wound. We, we clean it up, we sew it up, and it goes away. It's, you know, there are pricks all along the way. There are things that trigger my grief. And really, I live with this every day. It's almost like living with, you learn somehow to assimilate it into your life. I would say that would be, I guess you're right. Healing is not a good thing. It's just that you're not gushing blood every day, so to speak, by the emotional wound. You know, you're able to go on with life, maybe even laugh again, which I thought would never happen. I would ever find joy again. And I can say that I have. Did you ever feel guilty about laughing again, about feeling joy? I'm laughing, I'm enjoying myself, and Luke isn't here. Yes, I have felt that. I, I sometimes, you know, my birthday, for example, is the time, I just turned 50 last year. And I, it's hard for me to be happy on your birthday. Here I am, 50 years old, still on the earth, and my son is gone. So it's things like that. And there were times, like in the first year, because part of the movie shows us going to the Wake Forest games, because that was in a magical season. My other son, John, who went, who was a middle linebacker there, you know, dedicated the season, and they had this amazing run. It was a Cinderella season, and you know, going to those games in the first first year of loss and cheering and, you know, being happy seems so strange. I called it, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know, and you feel guilty for enjoying life. You feel like you're moving on, but you're not. You're moving forward and you're bringing the memory of that person with you. Well, we have to say goodbye. I mean, it, it, obviously you have an incredible story, one that we're so ha- we're, I don't know if happy is the word, but glad that you can share it and that you have had the ability to talk to, to be on, you know, to talk to us, to share about the movie, the fifth quarter. Uh, but Marianne, you're going to continue with us on the sh- uh, my show, The Social Workers, uh, next week on the 28th. 
So we have lots more to talk about. I have a lot more questions for you. But thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Marianne Abati. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Coming up next is uh, Dr. David Dosa, assistant professor of medicine at Brown University, to talk about an unusual cat named Oscar who possesses a unique gift. He's able to give comfort to the dying. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning is Dr. David Dosa, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Community Health at Brown University Medical School. And uh, he's here to talk about uh, an unusual cat named Oscar who possesses a unique gift to give comfort to the dying, which is, um, uh, there's a new book that uh, Dr. Dosa has written about him, Making Rounds with Oscar. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Dosa. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, what a unique, you know, I'm a cat uh, who can predict whether, when exactly, or I'm not saying exactly, but has some kind of a sense about when people are dying and then gives comfort to those who are dying. How does, how does that work? I mean, he's in your facility, the, uh, what is Steerhouse Nursing and Rehabilita- Rehabilitation Center in Providence, mm-hmm. um, and has been there for many years, as I understand it. Yeah, he's been there since uh, 2005. He was uh, a cat that we adopted to replace uh, an animal that we'd had at the facility for over a decade. And and he basically arrived uh, kind of uh, uh, wasn't really uh, 
there wasn't really much to say about him. He was a cat that would sort of hide most of the time. He would uh, find a place somewhere under a bed or in a closet. And uh, so his first year at Steerhouse was pretty unremarkable. But uh, about a year into his uh, stay with us uh, on the third floor, he started to come out of hiding, but seemingly would only come out uh, and and start uh, spending time with patients as they were nearing death. Uh, so pretty quickly, he kind of got everybody's attention. It was so uncharacteristic for him uh, to be out and about, and and uh, when he would start to curl up and and be with uh, people near the end, kind of holding vigils for them, uh, it sort of got everybody talking. So, doctor, does that bring comfort to the patient or to the family, or how does he do it? I mean, you say he's curling up, what? Beside the patient, this usually beside doing that actually gives them solace, the patient and or the family. Well, it, it's uh, it's an interesting thing because uh, I mean, first and foremost, as a disclaimer, this is a advanced dementia unit where, unfortunately, these patients are quite quite ill. Most of them have lost the ability to walk. Many of them have lost the ability to talk. Uh, uh, so this is really their last stop in many ways. Uh, um, it is a unit where we do have a number of deaths, uh, unfortunately, and uh, family members have to sort of come to grips with uh, losing a loved one here. And, and uh, I think most of the time the patients on the floor don't necessarily know what we, what, what, they they may know that there's a cat on their bed with them, or they may know that there's a cat around, but I don't think they can attach a meaning to it at this point uh, in their disease course. But the families know, and and uh, it's it's been very interesting with all the publicity about Oscar. There was a fear that people would be uh, um, quite uh, taken aback by it, but I think we found the reverse, that people actually have been drawing a great deal of comfort sharing the experience with uh, with the animal. I'd like to take a leap here, but what about, an, and I've worked in a lot of uh, nursing home facilities and inpatient uh, care facilities and hospitals. What, I mean, you're talking about you are, Oscar is in a facility where, as you say, the patients have dementia or they are, you know, terminal illnesses, and everyone is aware of that, you know, including the families. But what about Oscar's ability to be able to know when somebody's going to die? I don't know if there's a scientific reason for it, but what about patients who may be in the hospital who are seemingly more healthy can he do that and that could be scary but um well, he's on a, he's on a, a locked unit. He's on our locked dementia unit. So the patients that are on the floor all have uh, fairly advanced dementia. Um, so this, of course, would be a very different story if uh, it was uh, an environment where where patients might you know might know. Um, but regardless of that, I, I think uh, you know he's been bringing a fair degree of comfort to you know to patients. I, I think you have to with this disease process. Uh, there are lots of uh, there's lots of emotion that's wrapped up in this. So when when a family member puts a loved one in a in a nursing home with a disease like this, there's a lot of guilt that's uh, associated with that. And and I think the distraction of having Oscar there, the the distraction of uh, him being there, removing any guilt from that uh, um, from that caregiver is really one of the things I think that's. That's been Oscar's greatest gift. Uh, in terms of why he does what he does, I, I think he's probably responding to a smell of some form, perhaps a pheromone that might be released by 
by dying cells. There's certainly biological plausibility for that. Uh, I think the better question is why does he do what he does, even if he smells it, you know, why does he bother? And, and that's a more difficult question. It's hard to, um, it's really hard to, to put a finger on exactly why he does what he does. But uh, he's been doing it consistently now for almost five years. So is Oscar, as far as you know, the only cat that has the ability to do that? As you're talking about, um, you know, having the ability to smell or to pick up on the odors of dying cells, um, I'm thinking about, uh, and this is uh, about uh, not a cat, but about dogs who have the ability to sniff mm-hmm. um, whether or not someone, a woman has breast cancer. And apparently, they, I mean, I've just read a few studies, but that they can do that because of the odor that comes from the, I guess, the tumor or whatever, maybe whatever it is, and that they're right almost as many times as a mammogram is, or or equally so. Yeah, there's definitely studies out there that suggest that animals are perceptive in these types of ability in the, in these types of uh, situations you've heard of uh, of course animals that can predict when their owners are going to have ep- epileptic Epile- seizures yeah. and are able to drag you know their owner down to the ground so that they don't fall and hurt themselves and it, so i think animals do have this perceptive ability obviously not all animals have it I, we have uh, six animals or six cats at this particular facility and Oscar's the only one that does anything like this. Uh, uh, but I think uh, I've heard certainly of other animals that do similar things. Uh, I've received lots of letters from people around the country and around the world about uh, other animals that sort of mimic what Oscar does. Uh, so I don't think Oscar's as unique in terms of his abilities. I think he's unique because he's in an environment where he can do it over and over again. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Oscar, uh, it sounds to me, he had a good uh, emotional upbringing. (laughs) Somebody Mm -hmm. raised him well. Well, he he definitely has been raised in an environment where uh, there's a lot of caring and there's a lot of... uh, you know, when I sort of think about why he does what he does, I, I think he's praised, obviously, when he's there um, at the end of life, and whether it's by the families or by the staff. And I think he, he's just been reinforced with that, that uh, he should be there when, when somebody is nearing the end. So it's an interesting thing. Um, it's uh, But when you see it, there's also a certain amount of spirituality that, you know, you kind of uh, see this uh, animal sort of sitting next to a patient that's uh, on their way out. Uh, you can uh, you can sort of sort of attach scientific meaning to it, but it but it certainly has this appearance of much much more. Well, given what Oscar I mean does I mean do, uh, it seems to me are there are there going to be any more Oscars? Uh, you know, other at your facility or something that would be done? Uh, you know, more in uh, across the board. Yeah, across yeah. the board. Well, I'm, I always tell people I'm more proud of the fact that we have multiple animals at this particular nursing home. Um, you know, obviously Oscar is special, but all of the animals there are special and they all provide benefit for, for the patients there. There's good data now to suggest that uh, animals for elderly adults uh, certainly can reduce blood pressure issues, uh, cholesterol issues, uh, reduce uh, um, so- social isolation and depression, and even a 
amongst dementia patients, there's some studies that would suggest that it reduces the amount of drug use, um, antipsychotic use that uh, is frequent in nursing homes to control patients. So uh, there's definitely benefits to having any animal there. It doesn't necessarily need to curl up with somebody near the end. Um, but you know, but we have a bunch of animals there, and we're very happy to have a vibrant program. And, and yes, I think it should be reproduced at, at other facilities. Yeah, it's a great story, and uh, I, I recommend the, the book, Making Rounds with Oscar. You can buy it at Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Uh, great having you on the show. Thanks so much, Dr. David Joseph from uh, Brown University Medical Center. Um, one last thing, I guess when you first met Oscar, he bit you, so you're lucky, I guess. You, <laughs> when he starts curling up on your lap, you better be careful, doctor. I'm, I'm still here, but we've become yeah. better friends over time, okay. so he lets me pick him up now from time to time. So Good. <laughs> All right, have a great day. All right, thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you had a great morning. Uh, have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.